over the next few weeks as a lead up to Easter, we're going to pause from our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And instead, we're going to focus on a few passages that we thought were particularly relevant at this time. This morning, Sarah Yoon is going to read from Mark chapter 4. Following that, Dan will bring a message from that passage as well. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I know it's morning as you're watching this. I'm actually recording this beforehand because we are still in self-isolation. Welcome to my living room as you, uh, by the week, get a tour of our house. But this is the new normal. We are trying to model best practices here for social isolation and social distancing. Just a quick reminder, or I should say update, as to what's coming up. We are about to uh, move to uh, a fuller, more robust online presence. We're hoping to have prayer meetings several times a week. Next week, I think Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at a minimum, we will be having lunch uh, prayer meetings by Zoom. Uh, Look for the opportunity to join in if you can. We are looking at a daily devotion for you. We're probably going to partner with Redeemer out of New York City with their uh, daily devotions uh, for the time being, and we look forward to giving you that resource as well. We're also looking forward to um, a weekly family time uh, where we'll videotape a quick update on the church and what's going on, some specific prayer requests for people within the church, particularly from the front lines of the COVID crisis, uh, ways that you can help your community and your city, encouragements that we're hearing from uh, the different members of the body, those kinds of things. So those things are coming up. Just so you know, Easter week is coming. Uh, Starting next week, we'll have a Palm Sunday service on Sunday. We will probably have a Monday, Thursday prayer meeting, a Good Friday service, and an Easter Sunday service. So those things lie ahead of us. But this morning, as you heard Sarah reading the scriptures, you realize that Jesus is in a storm with his disciples. Because this morning we want to look at the issue of fear. Fear can paralyze you or it can catalyze you. It can be harmful or healthy. We are all at some level experiencing a lot of fear right now. We can feel it everywhere. Social media and the news is filled with fear. Fear, like I said, that can catalyze or that can paralyze us. Several years ago, I remember taking my very first flight. I, um, I had graduated from university. I was working, and I was flying to visit my brother in Vancouver. 
and I was filled with fear. Uh, I have a phobia of heights. I uh, hate roller coasters, bungee jumping, any kind of ride that involves heights and falling fills me with real fear. So I got on the plane filled with fear and then realized I had a window seat. <laughs> so after we were all seated, the kindly older lady who sat right beside me asked me where I was going. So I told her, she asked me why my forehead was filled with a sheen of sweat. Asked me if I was sick. I said, no, I'm not. But I told her about my fear. And so I asked her if I could close the window. She said, let's do better than that. Why don't you take my seat on the aisle and I'll take the window seat. That was great. And then we started to take off. And I tell you, my heart just about left the building. I grabbed the armrest so hard, I started raising and lowering one of them. She had to put her hand on my wrist. My eyes were closed, my teeth were gritted, and then we were up in the air. Finally, as we stabilized, some of the paralyzing fear left me. And we began to talk, and I began to be able to handle it. But then when she opened the window and I saw the clouds, I needed it closed again. And then she waited till the pilot announced that we were going over the rockets and she opened it and said, take a look. And I looked and I couldn't look. And then I looked again and I could see the Rockies, but we weren't going anywhere. And I was able to look for a moment and she said, let's switch seats. And so she let me switch seats and experience the safety of flying over the Rockies. That was wonderful. Then the coastal mountains and the turbulence came and I freaked out. I held my armrest as hard as I could. Sweat started pouring all over me as the turbulence of going into Vancouver landed. I got off the plane, barely able to walk, went straight to the bathroom and changed my shirt. It was crazy. Fear ruled me for most of those five hours. Fear was greater than the objects of my trust, which in that case was the pilot and the plane itself. And when fear is greater than the object of your trust, fear can rule you. I needed the lessons found in this story to help me then. And I think we right now need the lessons in this story because this story of Jesus and the disciples in the storm help us do two things. It helps us to face our fear and it helps us to dethrone our fear. Firstly, let us face our fear. In this true story of a miracle by Jesus, the writer, who is Mark, teaches us how to face our fear. By describing the actions of the disciples in the midst of a terrifying storm, this gospel story shows us that we can face our fear if we do a few things. Firstly, if we know what fear does to us. And secondly, if we know what fear reveals in us. If we can do those things, we can face our fear squarely. Look at the fierce the first few verses, verses 35 to 38. It says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took him with them on the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Then a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Look firstly at what fear does to us. We'll set the scenes. Jesus here has been teaching by the side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's been on a boat to do it so that they can hear him more easily. He's bouncing the sound of his voice off the water. It's a good acoustic move, and he's in the boat. Then he says, come on the boat with me and let's cross the Sea of Galilee. 
almost surely because he wanted to preach the gospel at another neighboring city on the other side of the sea. So Mark, who got his information from Peter, who was actually there and in the boat, tells us that several boats headed out. One boat was with Jesus. It's evening. It's the time when the Sea of Galilee is usually quite calm. But the Sea of Galilee is not normally a calm body of water. It's known for treacherous sudden squalls. It lies several hundred feet below sea level. It is ringed with hills and mountains, so it creates substantial air turbulence, especially in the afternoon. But when it happens in the evening, it is especially dangerous, partly because of the boats. Archaeology has shown us that these boats used by fishermen on that sea generally held 15 or so people, and they had low sides so that they could easily throw out and haul in uh, the nets that had the fish in them. But because of the low sides, they could be swampable fairly easily if a squall broke out. And this night, the squall is more vicious than ever. So what do they do? What do the disciples do in the midst of their fear? They do what we do when fear starts to grab us and the storms of life get serious and begin to get out of our control. They do what we've seen our culture do in this last month. Everyone scrambles for preservation. How do they scramble? Well, first, by leaning on their own competency. These are experienced fishermen, at least many of the disciples we know were. So they get people bailing the boats, manning the oars, manning the sails, and doing what needs to be done to survive the squall. That's what we do. We scramble to figure it out ourselves. We use our competency. We use our best practices. We try to solve it in our own way. But the squall is too much even for these, these experienced fishermen. Their experience is not working. It's not good enough. Just like our experience with SARS apparently has not prepared us at all for this virus. So what do they do next? They go to their leader, Jesus, who's asleep. They wake him up and they complain bitterly to him. Don't you even care that we're perishing? Does this sound familiar? Do we not hear about our leaders right now being critiqued, being called to sleep at the switch while this virus breaks out, of acting too late, of not caring enough, Trump caring not enough, too much for his businesses and not enough about people, Trudeau caring too much about being politically correct against the charge of racism so he didn't close the borders quickly enough? I could go on and on because you've heard the critiques as I have read them. I'm not defending our political leaders here, by the way. I agree that real criticism of our unpreparedness is warranted right now. But what I want us to do is see how similar our pattern is to their pattern then. And I want to say, what does that mean? Why do we scramble for preservation and then bitterly criticize leaders when we cannot solve it ourselves? Scholars have noted that this is unusually rude language that's being used here of the way they're talking to Jesus. Much more direct and rude even of the other accounts of this story in Matthew and Luke. The reason scholars think so is it's probably Peter who was the one who informed Mark of, of Mark's understanding of the gospel. Peter was there and Peter's a very impetuous and outspoken person. These are probably Peter's words to Jesus. Don't you even care? So the first way to face our fear is to realize, what does fear do to us? Because this is what it does. It makes us scramble for self-preservation and then bitterly criticize our leaders for not being caring and for not being competent. Now, 
let's look deeper and look at the second thing that we need to face our fear is to look beyond what we do to why we do it. What does this reveal in us? If fear moves us to scramble for self-preservation in our own competence and then criticize our leaders, what is this revealing about who we really are? Well, the first thing I think it shows us is we hunger for self-dependence. Underneath the scramble for self-preservation is a hunger for self-dependence. We long for self-control. We long to be able to control our own destiny, our own future. We hate being out of control. Why did I hate flying? I hated being out of control. We see this everywhere in our culture today. We're living lives of careful control. Our social media is curated to show our desire to present this controlled, orderly, happy, full life. We embrace all kinds of new technology that gives us greater control over our environment, even if very often it's not that good for our overall environment. We cocoon from our actual physical neighbors, and we go online and use our phones and our apps to live and make community with people who think like we do, have the same desires and interests as we do, who like what we like, control. This even plays out spiritually, where people want spirituality a la carte so they can control it. I was on another plane ride a little bit later when I had a professor of biology from one of our major universities sitting beside me. And I asked her about her religious beliefs, and she admitted, I'm actually flying and connecting to go down to the Amazon basin to be with a tribal group there because I love connecting to the spiritual through their spiritual rites and religious sacrifices. It connects me to a deeper meaning. And I just kind of looked at her and I went, really? You tell me that you don't believe anything particular about God existing, but you do this? And she said, yeah, I love seeing it and connecting to the spiritual through it. I said, so you do, do you live by their lifestyle and do you believe in their... She said, oh, no, 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 no. I pick and choose what I like. Yeah. A la carte spirituality that leaves us in control. This is not new, by the way. It is as old as the human race. In 700, around 700 BC, the prophet Isaiah said this about who we are. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. That's what this scrambling for survival reveals in us. A hunger for self-dependence. Second thing that this reveals in us, our criticism of leaders. What does that show us? It shows us a longing for a leader who's caring enough and competent enough and has enough control to actually help us through the storms of life. If you're here and you're curious about Christianity, and we always have dozens and dozens of people tuning in who are that, who are curious about Christianity, you probably have caught yourself sometimes mocking Christians for using God as some kind of a crutch. And, and, and I've heard this all again and again in our city. Why do we go to a God who can't actually stop all these storms of life? I'll get to that. I'll get to the storms and God and how they go together. But I want you who are curious about the faith to ask yourself this question. What alternative do I have? Who do you appeal to who actually does have control? Who actually does have the wisdom in the storms of life? You're speaking to an empty void. Read the present outcry against our leaders. Do you not sense in them a longing from all of us for someone with the wisdom to know what to do and how to do it? How to stop the virus without destroying the economy? We have no idea. 
neither do our leaders. How do we best ride out this storm? We won't really know. You see, the problem is we have nowhere to go with this longing. And so I need to tell you, perhaps your alternative is not as good as you think it is. Perhaps your skepticism about the Christian answer itself needs to be looked at skeptically. Maybe your doubts should be doubted. Christians, we though have to admit that sometimes, perhaps a lot of times, we go to Jesus a bit like these disciples did. We try to solve everything ourselves, and only when we have gotten to the end of our own ability and realize we can't do it, do we remember Jesus. Oh yeah, Jesus, God, help us. We come desperate, sometimes resentful. Like, why has it gotten this bad? You know why we do that? Because, you know, we want a God who will nip every crisis and every storm of life in the bud so it doesn't get too inconvenient, so it doesn't get too uncomfortable, so we don't actually get out of control. We want a different kind of God. We want a different kind of Jesus than the Jesus we see here in the Gospels. We want a Jesus who's a bit of a snowplow parent going before us and smoothing out all the moguls, all the bumps in life, so that they're little and we can handle them on our own. But that's not the Jesus we see here, and it isn't the Jesus of the gospel. He's not a snowplow parent, and he's not a God who just goes before you to smooth out your life. He's the God who calms the storm. He's the Lord over the winds and the waves of life. He is the cosmic God who created the universe. And in Jesus, and through faith in Jesus, is the power to dethrone fear. But it's only in that Jesus that you will find the power. So we faced our fear. We've done the first part. We realized it does something to us. It makes us scramble for self-preservation and it makes us criticize our leaders for their lack of care and competence. We faced our fear and seen it reveals something in us. Beneath the scramble for self-preservation is the hunger for self-dependence. Beneath the critique of our leaders is the longing for a real, true leader. Someone who can control the storms of life and has the care for us to do it. Now let us look at the second point. We faced our fear. Now let us face Jesus because in him is the power to dethrone fear. Point two, dethroning our fear through gazing at Jesus. Here in verse 38, we pick up Jesus turning the tide of the whole story. It says he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you hear the way to throne debilitating fear? The way, says the gospel, is to know Jesus in all of his presence, all of his power, and all of his peace. Jesus in his presence is throughout the story right there with the disciples. He's with them even though at first they ignore him. We know he's sleeping, but they don't think they need him, so they functionally ignore him. They try to solve the storm without him, but is he there? He is there. Now, 
He's asleep. That doesn't seem very, you know, in the moment. I grant you that. But when we look at the book of Mark and the whole purpose for which this story is written, the whole tense, this historical present tense, is meant to be written to teach the disciples something and to teach following generations like you and I who are reading it something. You know, this is the only time Jesus is recorded in the Gospels as asleep, and it's one of the few times when Mark uses a first-person disciple's point of view to tell the story. He means it to be a lesson for the disciples. So why is Jesus sleeping? Because sleep is a very human thing. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus is fully human. He's not partly human. He's completely human. And yet there's something extraordinary about Jesus sleeping in this unbelievably vicious squall. And this is the picture Mark wants to draw for you. This human but extraordinary human asleep on a pillow. That's a very particular description. You know someone actually saw him as Peter did. Peter wants us to know, and through Mark he wants us to know, this is a truly human being here. But a very different truly human being. He's not afraid of the storm. He is at peace in the midst of the storm. He is sleeping through it. He has zero fear of that which can threaten to kill all of them. Because he's not just fully human. He's fully God. Divinely present with all the divine power of God. The miracle that Jesus records here is as shocking as any miracle in the New Testament. Scholars have noticed there's no other miracle of Jesus that evokes such a response out of his disciples. The Greek says they were phobon megon, mega phobic. They were massively in fear. Although the word phobia has the meaning of awe and wonder mixed. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Jesus gets up from sleep. He experiences disciples in a kind of cowardly field, deloi in the Greek. And he gets up, and in response to their cowardly fear, he calms the wind and the wave. But how does he do it? He says, peace, be still. The actual words that Jesus uses are profound, because Jesus uses personalized terminology here. These words of rebuke in the Greek are usually used by Mark for where Jesus is rebuking demonic forces. Now, if you think of the, the sea in the Jewish mindset back then, the sea represented dark forces of chaos that often rebelled against God in his, his desire for goodness and flourishing for humans. Jesus here is rebuking creation, but creation as it is corrupted, creation as it is in its broken form, and as, as, as revealed to be in violation of God's original design for it. You see, the gospel says the world fell into corruption, into disease and death and natural disasters and storms. When humanity rebelled against God, creation was dragged by our sin, our rebellion, into this brokenness, this kind of shackled corruption where it does not do what God originally designed it to do. It's that creation tinged with darkness and corruption, that Jesus stands up and says, be still. So this dark scene where nature is a servant of death, and perhaps some scholars even suggest maybe even demonic forces, Jesus confronts and has complete 
mastery over it. Master, do you not care? He is the master. He's the Lord of the wind and the waves. And with a word, he says, be still, peace. In the actual Greek, it's a perfect passive imperative. He's saying, be still and keep on being still. In other words, respond to your master. He's the master of the storm. The one whom they sarcastically called master is actually the master of the cosmos. That's what Mark is trying to say. Jesus says here, and he says it in an intriguing way, he says, be still and stay being still. It's in the passive command. And still the sea becomes. Suddenly the way Mark tells the story changes. His whole grammar, the tenses change right here when Jesus speaks. It goes from historical present to the aorist tent, which is completed action with finality unchanging. Jesus speaks, the sea obeys, and it's done. It becomes absolutely still, without a quiver of rebellion or change. It becomes so calm, so instantly calm. The whole sea, like glass, so immediately. There's no natural explanation for it. So let's face the Jesus that we see revealed here. This man, this utterly human man, who can sleep with exhaustion in a storm. But this extraordinary man, who can sleep with pure peace in the midst of of a storm is not only fully human, but this is Yahweh, God himself, appearing before their eyes. The one who in Genesis created all of creation by mere words. Let there be light, and it was so. Is the one who in this boat takes corrupted creation and stops it in its tracks and reconfigures it. Peace, be still with mere words. The parallels here with the Genesis 1 account are too obvious to be ignored, and they are not lost on the disciples. They ask, who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who indeed is this? This is the Lord of the wind and waves. This is Jesus, the cosmic creator of the universe, come into fully human form. He has the power to calm any storm and all storms, but he's also present with us in them. That's the point. Go to him in your storms because he's present with you there. But the one who is present has the power help you have peace in the storms himself. Now, that's why Jesus rebukes the disciples here. Although some scholars note that he rebukes with some sort of compassion, there's kind of a resigned frustration in his words. Do you still, the Greek word is utah, do you not yet have true faith? Do you not yet get me? They're just learning the depth of who Jesus really is. And I submit to you, so am I. And to some extent, so are most of us. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the one with the power to reverse the corruption and recreate the whole world with a word. Now, if that is true, then actually two questions arise here that thoughtful people have asked. The first one, and they're both questions that both Christians and skeptics ask. So we'll take them in turn. Firstly, why did Jesus wait so long? 
you know, what's with this sleeping on the boat and then doing this great thing? Like they're so polar opposed to each other almost. Complete inactivity and ridiculous changing. Why not wake up earlier and calm it down a little, you know? Well, we don't know exactly why or how Jesus was still asleep in the midst of the squall. I think our best answer is that combination of exhaustion we talked about and some kind of supernatural sleep maybe given by God the Father. Why would he do that? Well, we know when Jesus is awake, he does something like this. So we can possibly pull together some ideas. Because in the New Testament, there's a profound thing Jesus does several times. Several times in the gospel stories, when notified of a, a dire need or crisis, actually life-threatening crises and storms, Jesus deliberately delays his arrival and intervention. If you know the story of Jairus, this is in, Ma in, in Mark chapter 5, so it's like two little episodes later. Jesus is again right by the sea, and a synagogue ruler named Jairus falls at his feet and begs him, come and save my daughter. She's at the point of death. He begs Jesus to come and heal her. And Jesus begins to go there. But then he stops. Because on the way, a woman with some kind of strange uh, condition where she has a discharge of blood continuously, and it's ruined her life, hears about him, approaches him in a crowd, and touches him that she may be healed. And Jesus stops. And he makes a scene of it. Who touched me? And he makes her out herself. And then publicly, after she's admitted that it's her, Jesus pronounces her healed in front of everyone so that everyone who knows her to have the problem and to be shunned socially and religiously and otherwise can now reintegrate her into society, can open their hearts and their lives to her. He heals her completely. But in so doing, he delays getting to Jairus' daughter, who's at the point of death. And by the time the episode with that woman is finished, Reports are coming to him in the crowd. She's already died. Jesus overhears Jairus being told about his daughter's death and says to him, Do not fear, only believe. The exact same point he's making here. Do not fear, only believe in me. The same pattern that we see in the story of Jairus, we see here delay and then massive redemptive intervention because in the story of Jairus's daughter he literally raises her from the dead and that's the same thing that happens with Lazarus by the way in John chapter 11 Jesus has got a close family that he knows well Mary and Martha and they're friends of his they're disciples of his and Lazarus is sick to the point of death. Jesus is told that Lazarus is dying. And so John 11, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Makes no sense. Deliberate delay to reveal depth of power. Because in the story of Lazarus, he raises him from the dead. I think that's what's going on here. There's this delay by his sleep. And then there's this unleashing of cosmic power over the forces of creation. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is asleep at the switch when storms engulf us. Sometimes he seems to delay his intervention, but they're for his purposes. That he might release and reveal himself more fully to us. 
Jesus is not just a God who makes sick people well. He's a God of resurrection who makes dead people come alive, both physically and spiritually. That's the point of the Lazarus and Jairus stories, the point of this story. Jesus is not just the snowplow God who calms a squall so that we can take care of it on our own. He's the God of recreation who, in a word, can reshape the created order. He has total control of the cosmos, which means that when God promises that he can raise you up and give you new life, he can do it. When God promises to us that he will bring in a new creation for his people, he can be trusted. And these things, the resurrections and the, this new recreation, this calming of the sea, these are foreshadowings of what God will one day do. He says he's coming back and he will do a cosmic recreation and he will raise us physically and really from death to eternal life and eternal blessedness. That is the Jesus we see here. That's why I think he delayed, to show more fully, more powerfully who he was. But there's a second question. It's the question the disciples asked. And it's the question you and I almost always ask when storms hit us. Do you care? If you do, why is this storm happening to me or us right now? I mean, I probably would have asked that question if I was in the boat. Lots of people are asking that question right now. I know what it feels like to have storms unfold over me that I can't control. Sue knows what it feels like. Many of you do. Sue lost her mom early. Her mom was 53 when she died. She died before I got to meet her, before I really uh, got to know Sue. In our first year of marriage, I contracted cancer in my eye that looked like it might take my vision away in that eye. We know what it feels like when the pain lingers and the loss remains and these storms wash over us and they didn't get taken away by Jesus. So why doesn't Jesus stop all the storms if he's a kind and loving God, if he has the power that we see here? Well, i got to tell you, as I said last week, we don't have all the answers. God's providence is complex. He's putting together in a beautiful and complex way for his redemption a whole story. But there are both dark and light moments in, in the scenes of this story, and we're going through a dark one right now. But scholars have noted one thing about this story. Mark as well as the other gospel authors, seem to deliberately be making parallels between this scene and the story of Jonah. Jonah in the Old Testament is a prophet called by God to go to a city he hates, an oppressive city called Nineveh, and tell those people, warn those people that God is going to destroy that city. Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to warn them because he's worried God is so gracious that if he warns them and they actually change and repent, that God will relent and give mercy to them. So Jonah flees in the complete other direction, gets in a ship, falls asleep, and the ship hits a storm. This storm, though, is the storm of God's loving anger at Jonah for disobeying his call and for trying to short-circuit God's plan to show mercy to Nineveh. Jonah is asleep in the storm, and then he's awakened by sailors in great fear. See the parallels? Jonah realizes it's God's 
providential, loving discipline at work. And he says, cast me into the sea and the storm will cease. And he's thrown overboard. And indeed, the sea becomes calm, just like here. And the sailors then, just like the disciples here, respond in amazed, reverent fear. They believe in the God who called Jonah. They believe in him, make a sacrifice to him, just as the disciples are amazed at and have a newfound reverence for Jesus. But scholars usually let the parallels end there and say, you know, Jonah became a victim of the storm. Jesus was victor over the storm. And that's true. But let's look deeper at the story of Jesus. Because the story of Mark goes on to say, this creator, recreator, Lord of the storm, himself is about to go into a different kind of storm. Jesus, in being able to fulfill his cosmic call to calm the seas, to reverse the curse, to recreate the world and take all wrong and all evil out of it, bring in a new creation, that's what's being foreshadowed here. The bringing in of a new creation means that Jesus, like Jonah, has to be thrown into a storm, the storm of God's anger. But not, like Jonah, God's anger at him. No, God had no anger at Jesus. His anger was at you and me. His anger has settled righteous wrath against our desire for control, our sin, our wrong, the sins that Isaiah says have made a separation between us and God. So Jesus, who stopped this storm for his disciples, went into another deeper, more profound storm, the storm of God's judgment over our sin, for Paul says, the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter 6. Jesus went on a boat here, but later he went not on a boat, but onto a cross. So that you and I could experience freedom. He went to a city called Jerusalem. And there he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and enter the full gowling, howling gale excuse me, of God's righteous anger. And he bore that anger. And he felt that anger. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though it was God's anger at us, Jesus said, let it come on me. And he satisfied that anger. And at the end, he said, it is finished. Jesus threw himself into the storm of God's judgment on us so that you and I could believe in him could be forgiven of our sins, could have a peace that passes all understanding, peace with God. Eternal peace, eternal access to a recreated order of the cosmos of eternal peace and harmony that he will bring in in the final resurrection. Jesus accomplished this cosmic victory by himself entering our pain entering the storms of life that we experience and becoming the cosmic victim, the scapegoat for us. He took our place. In our place condemned, he stood. I will finish that saying by Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God cares. He has endured a storm for us much more powerful, much more ravaging than any storm we will ever face. He is present with us in our storms, and he knows the suffering that we endure. When you face Jesus, 
you face the Lord of the storm, who himself took the deepest storm on your behalf, that he might ultimately deliver you from all the storms of the broken world. And when you fear Jesus, and the fear here is a reverential awe, fabon megon, mega awe, a kind of God-honoring reverence for him, knowing that he is in control, knowing that all things come from his hand, it will give you the ability to see his sovereignty even in the darkest moments and to feel his peace even in the deepest pain. Some quick applications. Firstly, if you're here and you're curious, if, if you are indeed still investing in Christianity, who are you going to call in these times of storm? Who do you long for? Someone with enough care and enough power to actually do something about these storms so they don't engulf us. Turn to the one who endured the storm of God's wrath for us, but who has the power to help us have peace in every single storm. There's a virus out there we haven't talked about yet. It's far more prevalent and contagious than COVID-19. It's called sin. That's the Bible's word for self-dependence from God. And everyone has some form of that virus. And the diagnosis is far worse if you have it. You face, if you don't deal with it, if you don't get the antidote for it, you face an eternity of anguish and pain and separation from a holy God who will judge you for your own selfishness. But if you take Jesus and his work on the cross as the antidote, you can have eternal peace with God. And you can have a God who cares and a God who in compassion came and died on a cross with you every moment of every day in every storm. Come to him. Christians, I want you to think about what I've just said to those who are curious and I want you to apply it to you. Remember firstly what God did for you in Christ, outside of you, in history for you. When he took your sins upon the cross, remember the cross. Secondly, remember what God has done inside of you. He has come and given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you new life. He's given you the ability to communicate with God, to feel God's love, to feel God's adopting pleasure in you. Pray. Ask God's Spirit to remind you that you are his beloved child. What God did for you in the cross was the first thing, but then he sent his spirit into you personally when you became a Christian. He's given you his spirit. Secondly, he's given you his people. Get together with his people. Use the technology we have. Many of you, and I suggest this is a really good way to go, many of you are in our small groups now in Zoom meetings, and you're about to go into coffee hour together to just talk about and debrief this sermon I'm doing. Do that, all of you. Get into groups and, and, and be together as much as technology and our moment allows us to do. What God did for you on the cross, remember it. Remind yourself of it. What God has given you inside of you, his Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the people of God, allow them to remind you of his love and encourage you. And finally, God's given you his word. His word was written for you, for your health, for your peace. Allow the promises of scripture 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Allow those to be anchors of your soul when you are battered and bruised by the winds and the waves of the storm. Allow his promise that you are his adopted child. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Allow these promises to be your calm, to be the antidote to the fear. I remember uh, one of my last flights I just took, I was flying to Halifax, but we had to get turned back because a vicious nor'easter had come in over Halifax, and we circled for a while, and we were battered and bruised and flying around like no turbulence I had ever experienced in my life. As a matter of fact, they had to get air sickness bags from every person who wasn't throwing up because people were needing two and three bags, especially in the back because of the turbulence being so bad. I hardly felt a tremor in my stomach. Why? Because I had learned to trust in the plane. I had learned to trust in the pilot. But most importantly, in those moments when people were screaming and shouting in fear, I was pouring out my heart and saying, God, you have me. You have me right now. And his peace flooded me. The object of what you trust in, when it is greater than your fear, you can have peace in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we, all of us, wherever we are in our journey of faith, would find you, gaze at you, and understand your power and your presence and your love in the midst of the storms. And we would lean on you, run to you. God is a very present help in times of trouble. Whom shall I fear. I pray that all of us would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple words of uh, orientation right now. Uh, many of you know that we normally do communion, but um, we do not feel, either theologically or denominationally, uh, we feel constrained that, 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 that the work of the Lord's Supper is meant to be done in community, physical community, and we're not allowed to do that right now. And so instead of us feasting on Jesus right now in the Lord's table, we get to fast and long and pray. Take a moment now and pray and fast and ask for God to give us back that time. Ask for God to break the power of this virus that we might be able to celebrate the feast together. Let's take a moment now and just reflect. Finally, uh, though this is a pre-recorded sermon, I will be with you live on Sunday morning. And I think, uh, God willing, we will have Zoom-enabled Q&A live, and I'll be in that Zoom room uh, to connect with anyone who has any more questions. Thank you. God bless.